Well, good morning and welcome. Uh, my name is Jared, and I have the honor of kicking off a new series called The Book That Reads You. Uh, we all have kind of this inner uh, monologue or dialogue, depending on if you're talking to yourself or not, uh, but we all have this kind of, we have these feelings, we have these thoughts, we have these, these things that happen in and through us that sometimes it's hard to uh, vocalize or externalize what those things are. And if you felt like if you ever put the pen to paper, if you ever said the words that you're feeling, someone might think you uh, should be saying those things. Uh, but when we look at the Psalms, this is a series through the Psalms, uh, we see that, that, man, David had so many thoughts, so many, the, the, the full range of emotions, and that he matches us where we are, uh, and, and that, that we can be understood and known by God fully. Uh, today we're going to be looking at Psalm 100. If you have your Bible, you can go ahead and open to that. Uh, if you don't, it's going to be up on the screens, uh, or you can follow along in the Bible app in the events section. Uh, there, there should be High Street Church right there. Um, but today we're asking the question, what is the appropriate response uh, to God? Um, social interactions are hard, right? Like, is that just me? Uh, I, you, sometimes I, I like walk into a situation and if somebody's too quiet, I tend to be a little too loud. I, 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 get, I get nervous when I get around people sometimes. You, you, you sometimes get angry and you say something that you don't mean to and you're like, man, I, I said the wrong thing in the wrong time frame and now that person forever thinks that I'm the dumbest person alive. Uh, there we go. I hope I never see them again because they think that about me. Um, but... An appropriate response uh, is hard to think through what is the right place in the right time. Um, when uh, I was about 17 or 18 years old, I was with my, my now wife, then girlfriend, Tyler. We went to uh, a mall in St. Louis, and we're getting ready to walk into the Apple store, and I peek inside, and there I see uh, one of my favorite football players, a St. Louis Ram uh, named Steven Jackson. Now, Steven Jackson was six foot two, six foot three, 245-pound running back. I mean, he just... just plow through people. He was, he's an incredible running back. And I see him and I'm immediately like, Tyler, that is Steven Jackson. She's like, that means literally nothing to me. I'm like, okay, well, let me tell you some things about Steven Jackson. And I'm like, he, he rushed for almost 1,800 yards last season. He rushed for over 1,000 yards the last three years. He caught 56 balls as the most for any running back. And he's, he, it's like, how can you not just be in awe of this? And she's like, well, then if you're, just go introduce yourself. And I was like, oh, I would never. That's, I would, I would, I would end up saying the wrong thing. I would end up, I was like, I have some, some tips for him. He's this big running back, but he tried to be shifty. I was like, man, run behind those shoulder pads. We'd be in the, the food court and I'd be showing him how to, anyway. So I was like, I, I couldn't do it. I couldn't do it. Um, and she just didn't understand it. And I, I ended up not ever going and talking to him. And it was like, he was a person that I admired, and I ended up not even going and talking to him, and be, all because I had the inappropriate reaction in the wrong moment, the inappropriate response in the wrong moment. And, and that happens in social situations. It happens when you meet someone famous. Uh, it happens with uh, your significant other. It happens all the time. Um, but I think one of the most important, one of the most defining things about us is what is the appropriate reaction that we need to give to God, because God is a lot of things. God is your creator. He is your sustainer. He is uh, the one who redeemed you. He is the one who knows you and knit you together and knows you better than any other person. He knows the number of hairs on your head. So what should our response to him be? There, there's so many different things that someone could think about or different responses that someone might have. And maybe, you know, you, you've kind of grown up in the church and church is your thing and, and you're inwardly thankful, but you're like, I don't, I'm not sure what else there is to do or to be, so I'll just 
Be inwardly thankful, and it never really made its way to an outward external show of that thankfulness. Or uh, maybe you, you've been hurt, and you feel like God didn't hold up his end of the deal, and, and, and you're angry. And your response to God is you want some distance. Or maybe um, your interaction with God is that y- you read the Bible, and you see some things that he said he was going to do, or you thought that he said he was going to do, and, and you're like, God, I'm not seeing it happen. Like, I've waited for a long time. I've prayed for a long time, and I'm not seeing it. And you're just like, God, I'm, I'm getting impatient, and I don't know that following you is worth it. Or maybe you just have this kind of sense of apathy that, like, you, you don't really care. It's just, it's just, maybe it's just one of the things that you do. You have work. You have school. You have your house. You have your friends. You have God. He's just, he's just part of the equation. Maybe you're really busy. Maybe you're bored with what your experience with God has been. You're calloused and you're just, you wouldn't describe yourself as excited like you maybe once were. Um, Psalm 100 gives us a response of how we should respond to God. Psalm 95 through 100 are really a psalm of praise. When you read them, a lot of times it'll have a heading of a psalm of thanksgiving or a psalm of praise. Um, Psalm 100 is a psalm of giving thanks. It's a psalm of how we respond to God. What is our appropriate reaction to God? And the way that Psalms 100 works out is that it's, it's an imperative, it's a hey to do, and then it's why. And it's a to do, and it's a why. So today I want to read uh, Psalm 100. I'm going to start in verse 1, and, and we'll talk about our response to God. It, it starts with the imperative, with the to do. It says, make a joyful noise to the Lord all the earth. And the first thing I want to read there is that, that last phrase that says, all the earth. That God does not look at you in whatever situation you're in and say, you have gone too far. That God's heart is that all would come to faith in him. That all would be forgiven. That all would be with him in heaven for all of eternity. So just to take the lid off at the beginning, I want you to understand that God loves you. God wants you to be in the chorus of the people making a joyful noise to him. And then you get to that phrase, make a joyful noise. And and that's a phrase that you may have heard in the Bible at some place or in church, uh, in old church history. They they sing this to a certain tune and they call it the old 100th. Let's sing the old 100th. And this is the 100th psalm that they're talking about. It's a familiar old tune. But what does that mean? What does a joyful noise mean? Is that just like, me and my friends growing up in church, we would just like make yelling noises and be like, ah, that's a joyful noise, right? Like, I'm good. Um, But that's not exactly what it means. Another version is going to say a triumphant sound, a triumphant shout, a triumphant shout. And the word picture there is not that we're just making random screamings or random noises. The word picture there is that a king who is triumphant is returning to his city victorious in battle. And we are now in the audience And we are giving him a joyful shout. Why? Because we experience and live in the freedom that he has given us. Um, In 2015, uh, the Royals won the World Series. Any Royals fans? Several. There's, there's, they're, they're coming in tens. They're wild here. Um, when, I moved to, when I moved to Springfield from St. Louis in 2011, uh, from St. Louis, so we love the Blues, we love the Cardinals, and I used to love the Rams. That's a whole other story for a whole other day. Um, but um, 
came to Springfield and people were like, oh, we're Chiefs and Cardinals here. And it was like, okay, that's kind of nice to be able to pick whatever you want because the Rams had some of the worst years in football of all time. Uh, so there was, you know, knock number one. Uh, number two, in 2011, the Cardinals had just won the World Series and it was incredible. Um, go David Freeze. But um, nobody was Royals fans. Like, it just didn't happen. And then in 2015, they started winning. They got into the postseason. They got into the World Series. And you just see people around town like, I mean, I just pulled this out. I've always been kind of a Royals guy. And it's like, Okay, sure. Say whatever you want. Justify it however you want to, but I've never seen you wearing a Royals hat ever before. So it's fine. It's good. Um, but they ended up winning the World Series in 2015. It's great. Uh, they had a lot of fun storylines, a lot of cool players that were fun to follow. Um, but when they won, like, I, I don't know Royals history. I don't know if they'd won one. I don't think they'd been good in the, in the, since the 80s with, like, George Brett. Like, they just, they just weren't very good for a long time. So when they won... What normally happens is you, you win the World Series, you receive a trophy, and then a couple of days later, the city will put on a parade, and they will put all the players in backs of trucks, in, in a bus with, a, with an open top, so they can, they can have the trophy to be paraded through the town. And Kansas City set a record then, and I'm not sure if it's still standing, but they set a record then, and the number that they think is between 600,000 to a million people descended on downtown Kansas City where this parade was going to happen. They called it the Sea of Blue the number that they can, they can in good faith stick to is 800,000 people descended on the streets of Kansas City because the Royals won. And this is the picture there, that, that you are joining in with the chorus of people that are shouting for joy at the victory of the one who's won, right? And what's interesting in sports and, and also true of, of this scenario is that I'm a Cardinals fan, and I'll say, you know, we're, we're doing pretty good this year. We had a rough uh, bullpen to start, but now the starting pitching for us is, we use a lot of us and we words, right? But the Cardinals haven't asked me to come on the field and play second or third base yet. Like, I'm, I'm waiting. I have several open applications, but it hasn't happened. Um, I'm not helping them win, in case you didn't know, just by looking at me. I'm not helping them win. We did not help Jesus get his victory. It's his victory, and we get to shout that victory to him. We get to share in that victory with him. That in our shout of praise, in our shout to the Lord, in that triumphant shout, we are living in his victory, and we get to join with him. It's not about us. It's about him. We're going to get back to this in just a second. There's really three S's that we see in verse 1 and verse 2, and the first one is shout. Make a joyful shout, a triumphant shout to the Lord. The second is in verse two, to serve the Lord with gladness. Serve the Lord with gladness. Um, does anybody here, does anybody here uh, clean a little bit better when they're just a smidge angry? Uh, maybe it's, again, maybe it's just me, but like I will, uh, something will go just a little off, not enough to say anything, but enough to kind of set me off and it's like, hey, I'm, gonna, I'm just gonna go do the dishes for a minute. I'll go scrub those dishes. Oh man. Those dishes get so clean when I'm a little angry. Um, or I will just pick up the house, but I'm doing it with like a like, pick up stuff. Kids leaving stuff everywhere. And I'll like to be doing it, and I'm like, I'm, 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 in my mind, I'm serving two purposes. I'm, I'm help, helping clean my home, but I'm also like not being angry at my kids or at whatever situation I'm upset with. And uh, a lot of times my sweet wife will come up to me and say, Jerry, everything okay? Yeah, I'm just scrubbing this dish. Okay. Um, if you need a minute, 
you can go in your room for a second, in our room, and calm down, come back out. No, I'm good. Okay? And I'll clean the dish with an angry face, with an angry attitude. And I think sometimes that's exactly what we do with God. We can look at the to-do list, we can look at the things that he tells us to do, and we go, God, I did it. Be happy with me. God, I gave. God, I served. I showed up when you asked. They said at church they needed help, and I did it. What more do you want? And this tells us to serve the Lord with gladness. And, and that's almost, as an American, you hate being told, hey, do your job and do it with a smile on your face. Don't tell me how to do it. Let me do it how I want to do it, right? But it says to serve the Lord with gladness. And that word serve in the Hebrew is both like the, the hierarchical of like the temple duties and the things that needed to be done and the, the big duties that you have in the temple, serving God in the church, serving God in the building on Sundays and Wednesdays and but it's also just kind of menial. It's everyday, very ordinary. That we can't just serve God at church. We can't just serve God with our small group. We can't just serve God in our Sunday school class and then come home and live as selfishly as we want. That does not reflect Christ. What if our service was so enveloping of who we are that we served in our nine to five? We served in our families? We served in our neighborhoods. We served at our schools in a way that we did it with gladness. And I, I, I just think about one of my, first, my favorite verses in 1 Peter 2 that talks about how you are a royal priesthood, a chosen race, a people from my own possession. So to exclaim the excellencies who brought you out of darkness and into marvelous light that we're given this like big purpose of reflecting God to the people around us. And I think that when we, when we serve people, when we serve God through people, we get the opportunity to do that in a way that is showing them who God is because they might not ever meet God out on their own. And we need to see it as an opportunity and not a duty. We, not we have to, we get to. Man, I, I get to go serve my neighbor I get to go serve that family member who takes up a little bit more time than I'd prefer. I get to help that coworker who doesn't quite know what he's doing or is at least pretending like he doesn't know what he's doing, so I end up doing his job for him. And I get to serve them. And you do it gladly. Colossians 3, 17 says, Whatever you do in word or in deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. There's a two-sided equation here. We serve as unto the Lord. Yes, you serve your neighbor. Yes, you serve your spouse. Yes, you serve your friends. Yes, you serve your small group. But you do it as unto the Lord. I'm serving you, but I'm doing it for God. And that makes it slightly easier, more understandable, or more palatable. Why? Because someone's going to annoy you. I'm, I'm just, if you haven't experienced it yet, some people can be annoying, okay? If you don't know that, spend some time with me and I will annoy you, okay? But it, it couples it with thanksgiving. Serve as unto the Lord and being thankful. We serve as unto the Lord while we remember. We look back and we go, okay, what is it that God did for me that I should be thankful for and that I can serve God because? That God created me. God loves me in spite of what I do. 
God loves me so much that he's not just going to leave me where I'm at. He's going to make me more like him. And we get to live in that thanksgiving. We also get to serve people. So the second S is serve. You have shout, you have serve. And the third one is sing. Verse 2, it says, come into his presence with singing. Um, did you know that, that the subject of a song is not the person singing it? It's the subject of the, the song. Um, we're getting ready to go into birthday season for our family. We have an almost five, an almost three, and an almost one-year-old. Um, and we're going to have a bunch of birthdays uh, till October. And we're planning our, our, our one-year-old's birthday party. And a one-year-old's birthday party is a funny thing because you give them a little cake to smash their face into, and they have no idea what's going on. They're getting ready to pass out in 30 minutes from a sugar rush. Um, but you have it anyway, and family comes and tells you how cute they are, and everybody goes home. Um, but what do you do at a birthday party? You sing happy birthday. And, and, and singing is one of those things that you're like, it, it's, it's an odd thing because it, it can carry so much emotion and weight, and we'll talk about that in a minute. But like, it, it's kind of coupled with that make a joyful noise of the Lord to shout. Um, and, and for some people, when you look at like somebody like Kyle or Holly or people that, that can sing and you're like, listen, I can't carry a tune in a bucket. So why would I, a joyful noise is going to hurt God's ears. Why would I even bother? But the, the subject of the song is the person that's being sung to. So if you showed up to my one-year-old's birthday party and you said, I'm not going to sing. I just can't, can't, can't carry a tune in a bucket. Guess what? It's not about you. <laughs> When you show up to sing to someone, it's not about the singer, it's about the person being sung to. That when we get the opportunity to sing to God, whether it's in private, whether, whether it's in a situation like this, whether it's in your car, God glories in the fact that his children are singing back to him. Not necessarily that it sounds good. I'm glad when it does. But he doesn't look at it and go, man, that sounded awful. He said, my children are singing to me the praises that I deserve. And it's beautiful. And I love it. Songs are such an interesting thing because, uh, I, I don't know about you, but like, they say that the, the music that you listen to between the ages of like 16 and 20 or the, is the music that kind of defines you. That you can kind of look back at like, the songs of the summer that you had um, and those are the, that's the music you like for like, the, the rest of your life. And, um, you can listen to a song and it takes you back to a place. It takes you back to a certain time frame. It takes you back to when you were 16. It takes you back to a certain time and place. And the thing about songs is that it helps us remember and it helps us know. Songs help us give words to things that we didn't know were maybe there. And and what's interesting about songs is that sometimes you just like, have you ever just been so overcome with emotion or, or being welled up with something inside of you that you just bust out in song? Like, it happens at my house all the time with kids. We'll just be doing stuff around the house and, and we sing to our one-year-old all the time. Like, my four-year-old will sing to my, my one-year-old and he just sings, Rig's so cute, Rig's so sweet. And he just, he, just, he, he just clenches his teeth and he just wants to squeeze him and he just sings him little songs. And it just wells up inside of him. And I think we should sing them. We should sing songs to God when, it, when, when emotion wells up inside of us. But I also think we should do the opposite. What I love about church is that people come in with any number of things on their plate. You could have just had the hardest night of your life last night. Been at your worst. And you had the opportunity to come and you to sing to your Savior. 
you get to sing about how good he is. And there's times that I've admittedly walked into worship not knowing what songs we're going to sing, not feeling it in my heart, but looking at the words and going, I need to sing this even though my emotions don't feel it. See, what I don't want to happen is to be dictated by my emotions. I don't want my actions to say, well, man, I'm just, I'm not feeling it today. I'm kind of sad. I'm not kind of, kind of feeling kind of introverted. I'm not going to be around a lot of people. No, I, I, I want to, in spite of my emotions, worship my Savior. That even when I don't feel it, to find a song in my car, in, a, in an alone spot, whether it's here or alone, to go, God, I'm going to sing to you today. Why? Because you deserve it and you are good. And you sing in his presence. I, I think this, this phrase, both the shout and the sing, what it's talking about here, is both high arcing, arching, metaphorical, and very literal. I think he says that you sing a song with your life. You sing a song with the way that you live. You sing a song with the way that you serve. Your life becomes a song because of the way that you sacrifice. Because of your relationship with God, we come into his presence with singing, that your life becomes a song, but it also means you physically sing a melody to God, even if it's difficult. Because I don't want to get to the end of my life and meet God and have him say, you just never engaged me with song like I told you to. That we do both. We sing to God, but also it says in the Psalms, that be still and know that I'm God. And I don't want to miss anywhere in between. I want to do both. We serve God. We sing to him. We shout. Why? Because it's about the subject of the song not the singer. So verse one and two are about the imperative. They're about the do. This is what we do. And verse three starts to get to the why. And this is the structure. Do and why. Do and why. And in verse three, he says, know that the Lord, he is God. It is he who made us and we are his. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. And that, that first word know is the difference of like making an acknowledgement. Hey, I understand that. I know some things about my favorite football players. But I've not experienced much besides what I see on TV. Um, when my wife and I first got married, she said, um, hey, let's go get some sushi. And I was like, no, I hate sushi. She was like, well, where did you have sushi before? And I'm the type of person who, like, when I go to a restaurant, I get the same thing over and over until it does me wrong, until the, the dish gets worse, till the entree drops in quality, and it's just not good anymore. And even then, I'm like, I'm still going to give it a chance because it was good to me once. Um, and when we would go to, to a place that served sushi, I was like, I, that's not my thing. That's not what I get. And one time, I went to, like, an Asian buffet with uh, some friends, and they were like, hey, try some sushi. And I tried sushi, and it was sushi from a buffet. So I hated it, and it was terrible right? Um, and from then on, I was like, I don't eat sushi. Sushi's bad. It tastes bad. And my wife asked, like, well, where did you try sushi from? And I was like, well, this Asian buffet. And she's like, well, it's probably terrible. So she went and found some sushi that she thought I would like, and she gave it to me, and it was delicious. My acknowledgement of what that food was was that it was bad, and I didn't like it. I had not experienced it to its fullness like I really should have. And for some of us that have maybe grown up around church or been around church and seen it and kind of been hurt by it, maybe we've seen it and you've acknowledged it and you've been around it, but have you really experienced the love of God? 
Have you experienced who he is? That verse says, know that the Lord is God. And in the original Hebrew, it said, know that Yahweh is Elohim. And that word Yahweh is the word that the Hebrew people would have known as, that's what they knew God as in their covenant. In their agreement with them that wasn't just a contract that said, hey, you keep up your end of the deal, you're better 51% of the time and I'll let you into heaven. That covenant said, hey, I love you. If you choose to be my people, it all rests on my shoulders. It all rests on my dependability. It rests on my consistency. It rests on my goodness. So when the Hebrew people would make a mistake, God would still show up. When the Hebrew people would forget for a season, God would still show up. And that word Yahweh was what encompassed that covenant, that agreement, that knowledge, that who he is. And that word was so holy to them, they had a process for when they had to, that they tried not to, when they had to write it. They had a process of cleansing themselves because it was so holy a word, they wouldn't say it out loud. It was a breath, Yahweh. And he said, I want you to know in the depth of your heart and experience it and know it for everything that you are. That's the God who loves you. That Yahweh is God. That second word, Elohim, would mean powerful, good, strong. That he's your sustainer. That he's your creator. That he's the one who holds you up. I have three kids under four. And when we meet somebody who's older, who's had kids, is like, man, you're in the thick of it. You, you, I was going to ask you to help me move, but you, you have your own chaos at home. You, you deal with that. And I, that's not a bad thing. But it feels like the world's about to spin off its axis with three kids in a home. And then here's God holding up the universe. I'm not, not sleeping at night because I'm worried about, man, I hope the sun rises in the morning. Man, I hope everything works the way that it should. No, God is holding that up. So here, the, here he is saying, I want you to know and experience and know in the depth of who you are that this God who loves you in this incredible way that's fully dependent on his goodness He's also powerful in holding you up. And then the next line says, he who has made us. And we are his. He's your maker. He's your creator. He knows everything about you. He knit you together in your mother's womb. And we're his. He still chooses to love you. Don't you have that where it's like, man, if, if people really figured out who I am, if they really get down past the surface, if they get to that second or third level of knowing me, they're not going to love me anymore. It's easy to do one, one of the two. I can love you from afar or I can know you. It's hard to do both. People are messy and people are difficult. But God meets you and says, hey, I made you and I know you and I love you. I want you to be mine. We're his people. He didn't say, hey, I will love you and save you and then be distant from you. I want you to be mine. And then he uses the term sheep. And, and, and sheep has that certain connotation that like, people say it all the time right now. Like uh, if you're following a certain thing, you're sheep. Like, that, people say that all the time now. It has a certain connotation. Don't call people sheep. It's not nice. Why? Because sheep are foolish. Sheep make bad decisions. Sheep have to be directed to the things that keep them alive like water and food, right? They're just not smart. They have to be guided into not falling off of a cliff. They have to be helped so that the, the, the weight of their wool doesn't knock them over on their own. Like, to, to, to say that we are his sheep 
is offensive to a certain extent. And, and to say that to someone who's self-sufficient and self-sustaining is, is to go, okay, hold, I, I, maybe I have some, some things to work on, but I'm not. Not that. But what about your spiritual sense? Spiritually, we have the sense to get lost. Spiritually, we have the sense to wander off. Spiritually, we have the sense to die on our own. In Isaiah 53, 6, he says, All we like sheep have gone astray, and we have turned everyone to his own way. There's any number of vices and things that you can run to to make your own that we think is going to give us life. But ultimately what's happened is that we've run astray from God. God had this plan when you read Genesis 1 to walk and talk with us in the garden. And sin didn't have any part of it. But when sin entered in, we went our own way, we went astray, and there was a a gap between us and God because God is perfect and we were now not. But what saves us is this next verse, this next part of the verse, and it says, and the Lord has laid on him, talking about Jesus, the iniquity, the sin, the consequences of our sin, of us all. See, if there's a gap between us and God because of what we've done, Jesus took that, said, put it in my account, make that my problem, so that they can have relationship with Jesus, with God again. See, when it comes to spiritually, we are sheep. When it comes to spiritually, we do need help. Because every one of us has gone astray in our own way. And the Bible says that that way leads to death. Not just physical death, but a, but a spiritual death of forever separated from God if we don't accept the free gift of God's forgiveness for us. And this is the basis of why we sing, why we shout, why we serve, why we can do it gladly because we were destined for an eternity separated from God, but he was good. We're his. We're known by him. And then he moves to verse four. And he says, enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to, his, to him, bless his name. What I love about thanksgiving is one, the food, but two, that you get to sit around and remember the year together. Man, I'm thankful we got to take this trip. Man, I'm thankful I got to make a new friend. Man, I'm thankful that we as a family learned this. I'm thankful for that season that we walked through. You're thankful for things that have happened in the past that we should, as a, as a basis of what we do in our worship to God, remember what it is that he's done for us. What if you as a practice took a piece of paper and said, what is it that God has done for me? When I'm doing my notes, he's forgiven me more than I could ever be forgiven. He's loved me when I am at my worst. He's gracious and kind to me when I don't deserve it. And this is where the spirit of of worship starts to well up in us. Why? Because we've been thankful. We're, We're reflecting on what it is that God's done for us. Then in verse five, he says, for the Lord is good. See, he's gone, do this because of this. Give thanks. Why? For the Lord is good. There's no end to the depth of his goodness. And this is where it's easy to, it's easy to to let this end with us and say, I, I I don't understand how anything could be 
good and perfect. People are hard to love. People are hard to get along with. This world's not what it was intended to be. People are, are difficult. People are selfish. I'm selfish. But God is good. So we worship after we reflect on God's goodness. The song is not about the singer, it's about the subject. God, you're good. There's no end to the depth of your goodness. Why? So so I'll sing to you. So I'll serve gladly. Why? Because when he is the well of goodness, we'll never get to the bottom of it. I'll just keep serving. That's where I keep going for my strength. That's where I keep going for my hope. Why? He's good. You're never going to get to the bottom of his goodness. And his steadfast love endures forever. That word steadfast, his love, it's like a a foundational anchor that's been drilled down deep. And regardless of whatever storm comes through, that anchor is drilled down deep and it's steadfast. It's not going anywhere. Regardless of what's going on in your life, God's love and faithfulness for you is not changing. Because what Jesus did on the cross, it's finished. His love is perfect. His goodness is perfect. And the last line flips it a little bit in in, in the purpose and intentionality of this phrase. His steadfast love endures forever and his faithfulness to all generations. There's this idea that our worship is something bigger than us, that it points to the fact that other people are watching and that generations will see people that say, You got storms going on. I don't understand it. Well, it's God's goodness that we hang on to. And generations will say, I want what you have because I don't have it. Christian, does the way that you serve, does the way that you sing, does the way that you shout about enjoy to God make people go, I want what you have? And you don't find it by just drilling down deeper into yourself. You find it at the root of God well of goodness of God. When I think about singing in the Bible, there's a lot of worship going on in the Bible and there's prophets that lead in worship services and there's Solomon and David who sing. But as I was doing my prep for this, I, I, I just remembered that in Acts, there are several people that, that basically sing to God in some moments and, and one of those is Stephen. Stephen was an administrator in the church someone who was in charge of helping make sure that the widows and orphans were getting everything that they needed and making sure that all the money was taken care of. And and he saw the need and he started preaching in the street to some people and he preached from beginning to Christ. And the people that were listening were so angry at him, it says that they clenched their fists and they grit their teeth because of what he said that made them so angry. And they started to pick up stones and they started to do what they could to start to kill him. And the words that it says about his reaction is that he looked up into heaven. He said the glory, he saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of the throne and he said, behold, I see the heavens opened up and the Son of Man is standing at the right hand of God. He's standing there worshiping God in the moment that he's getting killed. And I look at it and I say, How? His worship wasn't about him and his ability to sing. His worship was about the one that he served. And then a couple of pages later, you have Paul and Silas who are getting beaten with rods in the street because of what they have preached. And then it says that they're taken into the inner prison. They're beaten, they're imprisoned, 
hard stop on the verse. So Paul and Silas are singing at midnight. And I'm like, are, were they just, did they not get it? Like, hey, you're in a bad situation. It's okay to be upset. But they knew that their worship wasn't contingent on their situation. Their worship was contingent on the one who never changes. What is your worship rooted in? Why do you worship? How do you worship? It doesn't say if they felt it. It doesn't say if their emotions welled up and I just had to sing a song. Maybe it was, maybe it wasn't. But what we know is that they were obedient. Christian, are you obedient in your worship of God? To serve him, to make a joyful noise, to sing to him, to give thanks to God, to bless his name. And your worship will point people to him forever. Will you bow your heads?